Welcome to another episode of the Drawn to Scale podcast. I'm Pablo Cortez. Uh, no Anna today. She won't be joining us, but our guest is uh, David Rubin. He, David is with the uh, Land Collective out of Chicago, right? David? Yep, Philadelphia. Philadelphia, Indianapolis. sorry. That's right. Got it, got it. Apologize for that. Um, David is the founding principal of the David Rubin Land Collective. Um, his visionary contribution to the field in empathy-driven design is a hallmark of the studio earning increasing renown for fusing issues of social justice in cities with excellence in design of public spaces. Um, thank you, David, for taking the time. Um, I know I had a little setback a few weeks back, but now we're able to sit down and chat. <laughs> I'm thrilled, Pablo. Thank you for the opportunity to share uh, this conversation with you. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I think maybe we can just kind of get right into it. Um, uh, what I did want to start with is uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about the the work that uh, the David Rubin Land Collective does. Um, maybe some of the stuff that you're currently working on and a little bit about how you go about what your selection process is like or to get those projects um, um, as a part of, of Land Collective. Happy to do it. Uh, so uh, Land Collective is a landscape architecture, urban design and planning studio. We focus on uh, the design of uh, civic spaces. Uh, our work is probably divided roughly into three categories. Uh, about a third of our work is uh, working with developers. Uh, a third of our work is with cities and agencies. And a third of our work is with academic, commercial and cultural institutions. Um, for the design of campuses uh, and the like. Uh, we do do, um, we range in scale from intimate spaces to large regional plans, um, recognizing that uh, landscape architecture in particular is this extraordinary discipline of static and living systems, sociology, anthropology, design problem solving, that really this extraordinary connective tissue that is uh, wonderfully equitable, has the possibility of uplifting and informing all no matter their status in our society uh, and really um, uh, uh, trying to find opportunities to allow for accessible landscapes and uh, in particular for us accessibility is, while it is very much about uh, overcoming physical challenges it is about the invitation to participate so the landscapes that we design and collaborate on with our clients and um, and their constituents are very much about um, identity-rich um, uh, landscapes uh, and, you know, places that resonate in the hearts and the minds of the citizens that occupy those spaces. And those citizens are very much a part of the design process for us. We work with um, uh, clients or interview clients as much as they interview us, I like to say. Uh, to ensure that our empathy approach, our capacity to think beyond ourselves, to problem solve on behalf of others, um, is something that they're interested in because more and more uh, landscape is becoming form-based in its solution making. And uh, we really strive for spatial relationships, spaces that can accommodate very diverse citizenry um, for the purpose of uh, I guess, in their humanist constructs, allowing very different sorts of people to participate, say a chemistry professor and a young protester who wouldn't normally speak with each other, uh, find themselves in a design or plan of our making, and as a result, uh, feel comfortable enough in that humanist construct to um, be proximate to each other. And as a result of that proximity, um, they sit begin a conversation that conversation comes up with an idea 
that idea 10 years down the road saves the world, we will have been successful. Not because we're smart enough to come up with the thing that saves the world, but we are smart enough to come up with uh, extraordinarily humanist design spaces where people feel good enough to be with one another. And in an age of nationalism and xenophobia, this is incredibly important. If we intend to retain and uplift culture, we have to find opportunities to have these conversations. We are more alike than different, differentiated by minute particles of DNA and cultural nuance. Um, and so uh, that, that capacity to dialogue and uh, understand each other is what takes place in landscape, the connective tissue. You, you mentioned the, the empathy-driven design. We kind of uh, included that in your intro. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? I think you kind of covered it. Um, I don't know if, if there was a specific uh, maybe um, way to go about that. Um, it, does it have to be a certain type of project that, where that gets applied to? Um, yeah, yeah, if you can just talk a little bit more to that. Um, so it actually, you know, when I, I separated from my old practice, uh, having won the, the Rome Prize, uh, I, I really tried to, dis, to define what, makes, what would make a practice of my leadership unique. And uh, one of the things in my uh, former, more corporate uh, practice, uh, we would take Myers-Briggs and DISC surveys and all these other sort of psychoanalytical processes to understand how to align ourselves as a group of people. What was interesting about the responses that would um, that I experienced from these sort of alignment exercises was that I charted really high on empathy. I had a capacity to think beyond myself and, and really wanted to serve my clients and their constituents. Problem solving for me was not about me, it was actually about them and trying to figure out what, what they were facing. and through the establishment of trust, really begin to understand from their lens, from their bias, from their point of view, what their world challenges were like, their life experiences were like, and to develop designs that were responsive to that. So it was less about me and more about them. And so it's inherently a part of my DNA, whether it's part of my upbringing or what, it's just very important to me to make that emotionally resonant connection. And so uh, the, I realized, okay, if this practice is gonna be my leadership, then it has to uh, work through that lens. And um, that became the, the, the basis of our mission. Um, and I think a, a, a good one to problem solve in 21st century society. Um, the active listening, uh, you know, is incredibly important to our process. Engagement is a fundamental part of our process. Dialoguing with our clients, with their constituents, uh, uh, very much integrated into this design process. Um, so, uh, you know, it used to be that designers would stand with a torch uh, saying, you know, follow me, you know, I will bring you to enlightenment kind of thing. And that's not appropriate in the 21st century society. Uh, we stand with a torch alongside our clients and their constituents to illuminate the challenges that they're facing and work with them to problem solve. Um, so that in the end, they, the sites that, that are resultant are accessible, where identity can take place. People can see themselves there. They understand where they are and in the design process, they understand how they are 
benefiting and participatory in the resultant work. And then those places have legacy potential. They will not be erased because they're loved in the hearts and the minds of the citizens that occupy those space because they were a part of that process. And my aspiration is to design for my grandnieces and grandnephews, not for myself. I want the work to be legacy work. Um, and that to me is what empathy driven design is all about. I think you see in, in a lot of your work, um, is it is it mainly um, sort of that uh, um, city type work, like sort of downtown focus centered type of work? Um, or are you also doing stuff beyond the city limits? Are there any kind of rural spaces that were that um, your projects kind of exist and are developed? Well, we do largely work within cities. Um, you know, we do work predominantly for cities and city agencies or federal state agencies, uh, but as much for cultural institutions, academic institutions, they are in themselves many times cities themselves, like small uh, aspects of that. We, we don't do green fields. Uh, we really don't do residential. On occasion, we find a residential project that is incredibly important, largely because of history. Um, uh, but uh, most of our work is within the connective tissue of cities. Um, and I, I love that because the, the <clears throat> cities are wonderful cultural constructs where, uh, you know, and it, there's a reason why cities chart largely blue versus red, uh, you know, the, the difference between city and rural uh, is one of, uh, you know, diversity to homogeneity in many respects. And the beauty of cities is it's full of grit and verve um, and challenges. There, uh, you know, there's room for everybody and largely as a result of, of the, um, the population of these uh, uh, urban constructs that, um, you know, the grit gets rubbed off. You know, you, you have to want to appreciate other people to live in a city. Um, and the, the, the beauty of that is, and the challenge for designers is finding the capacity for voice for that diversity and the distribution of great civic spaces, whether they're smaller parks or, or larger plazas or even just the profile of streets, giving people opportunity um, to self-identify, to see themselves and to see each other because that's where the success of a city lies. And you, you've done work, I, I remember at the ASLA 2017, there was a, uh, you were part of the um, presentation um, along with then mayor of Anaheim, Tom Tate. Yeah. Um, and you, I think you, there's a program, I don't recall the name of the program, but it involves- Mayor's Institute on City Design. Mayor's Institute on City Design. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk a little about how, how you, your involvement in that and how that came about? Are you still involved in that uh, program? Is that something that's ongoing for you? Uh, well, my love for MICD uh, uh, is deep. Uh, Trinity Simons is the director. Uh, she's an extraordinary individual uh, who understands the power of collaboration to assist elected officials in their governance um, uh, of these diverse populations and the challenges that they face. Um, I was, one of my first ones, as you said, was with uh, uh, Tom Tate uh, representing the city of Anaheim. He was experiencing significant challenges uh, uh, and, uh, but, but he, and, and eventually he developed a, a, 
the city's theme as a city of kindness. So of course we we were uh, simpatico uh, in many respects. Um, you know, one of the things about the mayor's institute on city design was uh, for that particular year, I, if I remember correctly, um, the they gave us that we were you know planners, architects, economists, others who informed the city fabric. I was the only landscape architect. Uh, present and we were given five minutes to explain to these elected officials um, why our discipline was relevant to them and um, you know I, I knew I inherently knew that these elected officials from minor hamlets to major metropoli um, that they would think of me as a landscape architect as something that they would see on Saturday morning curb appeal programs or fix it programs right and um, of course, this discipline is significantly more than that uh, and much more complex than building architecture um, because of all the social and living systems uh, uh, that they have that, that, that we have to deal with. Um, and uh, so we were given five minutes to explain our value and I uh, chose to show them a Noli map of Philadelphia, my hometown, um, and invert it so that all the public spaces were rendered as black and then draw a, 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 a strange shape that encapsulated the, you know, uh, the grid of the city minus the two riverfronts. Uh, we are in Mesopotamia here in Philadelphia and um, uh, quantified it. And I think roughly speaking, there was 2,500 acres in total um, or sorry, 4,000 acres in total, 2,500 of which were, uh, uh, or sorry, 1,700 of which were the buildings and 2,500 of which uh, acres were the, the everything else. And so I govern everything else, right? Like the landscape architect is working from the building face to building face and sometimes on top of it. So, um, and it is the least expensive, uh, thing to manipulate to inform the largest number of people. And I, I showed, you know, uh, a diagram of a building and showed a, a small amount of constituency and said, you know, building architects designed for specific types of people, landscape architects. And then I showed the profile of, of two, two buildings and drew a, a space between them and a larger constituency. And I said, you know, I work within this realm and support this constituency. And um, it's the least expensive thing to manipulate to inform this great constituency. And by the way, all of those people vote. And suddenly the, the light bulbs went off on the elected officials and they began to realize that by spending less money, they could inform greater numbers of people and get reelected, which is the goal of every elected official is to get reelected. And uh, suddenly I became their best buddy <laughs> through this process. And uh, seven of the nine challenges facing the nine mayors there, seven of the nine challenges ended up being landscape-based solutions. And so I was very popular that year. And it, 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 it made me uh, love the MICD and uh, I, I continued to uh, work with them whenever requested to do so. Yeah, that was a very informative uh, presentation um, back then. Yeah. Um, Maybe you can step back a little bit and if you can kind of maybe walk us through how you got into landscape architecture, how you started and maybe talk a little bit about your first job. <laughs> I'll start by saying that uh, uh, I'm a person that has learning challenges. I don't absorb information through written word. I don't absorb information through mathematics. Uh, was something that I didn't understand. I'm sort of at the age bracket uh, where these types of things were not charted. Uh, 
uh, per se. Um, I tell this story sometimes of, of um, you know, finding for the first time uh, as a, a kid in boarding school um, that um, I had my first art teacher at age, I think, 16. And uh, suddenly the world opened up to me in a way that it hadn't before. I went from failing out of high school to accelerating my learning process because I began to realize that I was a visual learner. And this great art teacher um, taught me about, uh, you know, uh, ceramics and uh, printmaking and drawing and painting, and also about art history, something that I wasn't wholly in tune to. And that uh, it became very clear to me uh, in the observation of the artifacts of other cultures, uh, again, that there are very interesting similarities uh, but divergent in the expressions, but the expressions themselves could be categorized uh, culture to culture. And uh, suddenly uh, it linked me to every other human being and every other culture because there was that commonality of artifact. And so my love of art history and my love of art ended up getting me into college. And uh, I remember, uh, tackling, you know, with all of these learning challenges that I didn't quite understand, uh, that particular college, Connecticut College, gave me the opportunity to write all of my papers uh, from the point of view of my chosen major, which was then a double major, one in fine arts and one in art history with a minor in botany. And so I was, you know, writing, you had to take very different, uh, as a liberal arts college, you had to take many different courses, government, chemistry, language, etc. I was writing government papers from the, you know, the art, uh, from the uh, point of view of an art historian and using, you know, writing about platonic philosophy and the art of the choroi, the male figure in sculptural art, um, and demonstrating how that was a reflection of democratic principles, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I was getting A's on my papers, which I had never done before, and graduated, you know, uh, uh, did my, my art thesis and ended up winning the award for art from the college that year. And uh, was very proud of all that I had accomplished and my, you know, Latin letters after my name and all that stuff. And, you know, when I, when I went into my graduation ceremony, the apocryphal narrative is that my mom said, yeah, this is all well and good. I'd like you to be a lawyer. And uh, so uh, for somebody who has learning challenges and, and doesn't read as well as he would like to, that's a real problem since law is about the written word. Um, and uh, so I did manage to take the LSATs and, and get into law school. I got into Villanova. Uh, and I also took my portfolio from my art program and applied to Harvard's Graduate School of Design and got in for landscape architecture. And uh, to continue the apocryphal story, uh, I took both acceptance letters to my mother, who I like to muse at the time was a very narcissistic individual, said, you know, I have these two acceptances. I did get into law school, but I also got into Harvard's Graduate School of Design. Where would you like me to go? Knowing, hedging my bets, that she would, as she did, reply, I want the H on my car. And so that she could say to her friends, my son goes to Harvard. And I got to go to design school. Um, and it wasn't art school, which is great, but I could be, you know, have a design background, be informed by art. Uh, actually, now my husband and I are very supportive of young artists um, and uh, uh, really do, you know, uh, imbue the studio here uh, in Philadelphia and in, in Indianapolis with pieces of art from our small collection of uh, art from folks that we know and appreciate. 
Um, it surrounds us every day as cultural artifact and expression, and we try to imbue that into the work that we do in creative solutions and problem solving. You spoke about your, your art teacher. Any other uh, mentors um, throughout your career that you can, um, you know, if you had anybody that you looked to for guidance throughout your career? Yeah, there, there, there was a, uh, there is an architect. Uh, his name is Buzz Udell. His he and his partner John Rubel of more rudely Udell Architects in Santa Monica. Uh, they're very humanist uh, individuals and very creative uh, uh, folks. And I've loved collaborating with them. Uh, I tried to model myself in many respects as a, a studio leader uh, to reflect Buzz's ideals um, and have appreciated that. Um, there have also been clients that I've worked with, uh, Jim Lammers uh, uh, of, of the Dart uh, Company. Um, he was somebody that I continue to remain in touch with him and his wife. Uh, his leadership style uh, really resonated with me. He would ask people questions. It was not dictatorial. It was meritocratic in leadership. He really wanted to understand uh, what people could bring to the table and why. And so uh, the learning to ask questions and um, engage with my my colleagues here is is what I aspire to do. So they they've been two very influential people uh, for me um, in in my career. Um, I will also say that that uh, you know one of the 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 challenges for me as an individual and a young person in particular um, in identifying myself was that as a a young gay man who didn't understand what that meant at the time um, uh, you know this is a a, a pre-AIDS AIDS narrative when you know uh, the world was experiencing for at least at that point its first uh, viral pandemic we're in our second for the bracket of those of us alive on the earth at this time um, that was also very informing of me and uh, uh, the, the outcome of my uh, desire to uh, engage with people empathetically and uh, uh, resonate with others uh, for their diversity. I read as a middle-aged white man, but there's so much more layering uh, to all of us uh, um, in this, in being informed by the experiences of, of others uh, through my uh, young adulthood, graduate school, and then uh, college and, and graduate school experiences has been extraordinary. And I think has actually prepped me as an individual to think about the current uh, pandemic challenges that we have uh, uh, in our society. So it's not an individual that has inspired, it's an experience that has inspired. We are actually a nationally certified LGBT community uh, uh, practice. Uh, fitting within the XBE categories, uh, so. Speaking of of the the office itself, um, you know we've 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 had guests on that we we talked about um, that office uh, burnout culture, right? That some people have gone through. Um, you know, people are are leaving offices. Um, has Land Collective experienced any of that? Um, have you made any changes? Um, you know that have improved uh, employees' work life balance, um, and maybe you can speak a little bit about that. I think because we already have had a practice focused on a level of sensitivity that we that I particularly have tried to create an environment as uh, uh, the Dean of Harvard calls a, a love culture within this practice. Um, uh, 
I came from a fear-based practice. Uh, the, the, the behavior of my former partners um, really did focus on, on fear. And I really try to ensure that this studio is a place uh, where people always want to come to explore design challenges. It doesn't mean that it's easy. And certainly people do get burned out, um, but we try to establish a, a reasonable uh, uh, work-life balance here. Uh, I will say we're largely nine to six. <laughs> um, and, uh, but we also imbue it, as I said, with uh, there, there is art everywhere in this studio. Uh, it is a palimpsest of materials. If you, if you had the capacity to look at it right now, um, we're, we're, we're creating an exhibit for the uh, Pennsylvania Horticultural Society's flower show uh, coming up in June. And uh, there is dyed drying fabric everywhere in the studio right now. Um, it is uh, for, for a new garden that we're designing called Embrace, which is meant to be a manifest of our, uh, a manifestation of our, our mission. Um, a very inclusive garden that invites people to participate. Uh, I love the mess and the messiness of the studio that we've created. I purposely uh, uh, purchased a building that is at ground level um, where people passing by can see design in process. It's not rarefied, it's meant to be accessible. Um, we work uh, strategically on projects that are uh, uh, from posh to gritty. Um, and it ends up, and, and for, for uh, uh, those that have and those that have less and we purposely try to to diversify our portfolio so that we are not known for any one thing other than humanist constructs and when you design for the human being you can cross typologies easily and even in a you know it is the anthropocene the age in which human beings make decisions for every other living creature on this earth so um we even when you're designing for nature, you have to create environments that are loved by people or, or will erase them. Um, that sort of, you know, breadth of practice and scalar differences of projects keeps people intellectually nimble and trying and, you know, exploration is every day. So that helps to alleviate the burnout, if you will. Um, and we also work strategically to develop a meritocratic process here um, where I might come up with a big conceptual idea, um, uh, but I invite other people to participate in figuring it out with me. And um, therefore there is an investment of self throughout every project. No idea is considered too small or uh, too removed. We're, we do try to actively listen to each other in this to practice what we preach. Um, I think we've come up in the nine years that we've been working together um, with some extraordinary constructs uh, and I'm very proud of our portfolio which continues to grow and inform. Yeah, I think we're coming up on, on the end here. Um, is there, we'll, we'll provide a link in the show notes for the, the, the website so you, people can take a look at your work. Um, any other ways that people can um, connect with you or maybe, you know, yeah. Uh, so because I, uh, I'm a very visual person, we started uh, Land Collective as an Instagram. So uh, Land Collective is our 
tag name there. I also have my own, which is dr underscore land collective. That's my Instagram. It allows me to be a little bit more political, a little bit more left-leaning, investigatory. You know, uh, I also have a collection of antique garden tools that I'm always talking about and explorations of gardens and landscapes across the world. Um, but we also have this uh, magazine called uh, Landscape Field Notes from a Post-Pandemic Future. And it has its tag at uh, post-pandemic landscape uh, on Instagram. And it is a representation of the thoughts of the breadth of our constituency here at Land Collective focused on making landscape accessible to all parties and to give them opportunity for uh, questioning, for the development of language, for dealing with current issues, uh, past and present, um, uh, through, uh, you know, uh, 10 insertions per per uh, Instagram post. So uh, it is a dynamic uh, magazine. It's meant to be uh, pe for have people respond and appreciate. Um, so I invite people to uh, find us through uh, post-pandemic landscape on Instagram. Yeah, we'll, we'll include, like I said, we'll include that links to those in the uh, in the show notes. Cool. Um, David, thank you very much. Um, I'm glad we got to do this. Yeah. Thank you, Pablo. I, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation with you. It's uh, such an extraordinary discipline, landscape architecture, and yeah. um, it will save the world. Yeah.